today we're at Queen Elizabeth Country Park and it's a little bit noisy because Queen Elizabeth Country Park is right next to the A3 but hopefully we can still record our podcast and we'll be able to hear each other talking. So let's have a go and see what we can do. Welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast where we hope to bring you close to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davidson and I'm here once again with my co-host Carly. Hi Carly. Hi Andy, how are you today? I'm fine, a little bit colder than we have been through recent months, I have to say though. That's not a bad thing though, is it? It was a little bit hot in the summer, wasn't it? Yeah, it does come a bit of a shock though, doesn't it? I mean, we've just gone past the autumn equinox, which means the night's longer now. I think we had a hint of a frost the other day, which is really quite shocking. Have you put your fire on yet? I haven't put the heating on now, but I've just got some logs in to... I'm going to have a fire tonight, certainly. So we're not on the coast today, Andy? No, no. We're up in the country a bit more, aren't we? So where are we today? So we have come to Queen Elizabeth Country Park today to meet with Ashley, one of our brilliant rangers, to learn more about trees and seeds. It's a good time of year to do that as well, isn't it? It's a brilliant time of year. So shall we go and find Ashley and find out what she knows? That'd be a good idea, I think. Hi Ashley, it's good to see you. Hi Andy, it's lovely to see you too. I mean, it's a little bit more dismal today, but it's nice to be out on Queen Elizabeth Country Park. You used to work here, didn't you, on this site? Yes, I did. I started volunteering here nine years ago and started working here five years ago. And since then have moved to the Access team and have just recently moved to our new National Nature Reserve team that looks after Butzer Hill National Nature Reserve and Ashford Hangers National Nature Reserve. So clearly you know these woods quite well. Just a little bit. So what are the woods mostly here made up of in terms of tree species? Predominantly we are a beech and conifer woodland and that's because though we are based here we only lease the land from the Forestry Commission but it is still a working woodland with produce and crop that is taken out for value. So the Forestry Commission actually own the land, we lease it from them but they still run it as a, it's like a plantation so it's been planted as a woodland to take products out of isn't it? So it's mostly beach behind us here isn't it? It is, predominantly beach behind us. Yeah. And Carly has just very kindly gone and found some seeds of that so it's got these little thorny and little urchins aren't they really? They are and they house a fairly small brown triangular seed and yeah. um, these are known as beach masts yep. and generally found on the floor surrounding beach trees. Yeah, they don't have any dispersal mechanism themselves, do they, in terms of spreading these out? They just drop them? They do just drop them and then animals such as badgers or squirrels will come along and eat them and then through digestion later on will be left elsewhere. But probably more importantly, that some species will cache them won't they? Yes, so they will bury them, so a jay will bury them and later in the winter when food is scarce they'll go back and dig them up. That's if they remember where they are, if not they do tend to then just be able to grow. So we've got a little intruder on the table beside us at the moment, there's a lovely little moth crossing the table isn't there? It is. Do you know which one it is? No I don't actually. It's a pale tussock moth caterpillar and it's, I mean do you want to describe it? It's quite stunning isn't it? It's predominantly a lime green with black stripes and it has a red pointy tail, four little fluffy patches on its back and then a lot of spiky looking things around the edge. Where it's folded up a bit you can see there's black bits in between the green. It's quite a stunning thing isn't it? It's a pale tussock moth caterpillar. I think caterpillars, I mean moth caterpillars are quite overlooked aren't they? They are, moths are a very underappreciated species. But it might be it's got to the point where it wants to pupate. I think we'll rescue it in a minute and drop it over in some leaf litter over by the trees. But there is quite a lot of different tree species behind us. I know we've got the the beach here mainly but um, there's a lot of tree species behind you aren't there? Do you know what that one with the rounded leaves is there? So that would be the white beam 
um, and they have a berry rather than a seed. These are then dropped and like the beech mast are then consumed by passing animals which then disperse them wider. There's some thrushes that only turn up in the winter here. Some very rarely breed right in the far north of Scotland but for us they're winter thrushes at the field fair and the red wing and clearly they'll pick the berries off the tree and quite often fly a distance before because it passes through their digestive system and the seed will survive in there and it's very nicely dropped with a little package of fertiliser with it as well, isn't it, of course? And you have species like cherry where the outer shell of the seed is so hard they have to go through the digestive tract to be broken down to make it permeable to water as well. It's amazing they've developed so much they can't actually germinate without going through the digestive tract as well. And there's several different ways dispersed behind you, I think, because we've got there's a little ash tree there. We do have a little ash tree and an ash tree has what we call wings. It's a single wing that holds the seed pod and they are blown from the tree and then they land on the ground, which is where they will germinate. Depending on the height of the tree and the weather conditions, it kind of depends how far they can go. You have species like sycamore that are actually double winged, just a slight variation. And they spin like little helicopters, don't they? They can't take off as such. No, they just spin nicely to the ground. Then it delays hitting the ground so hopefully they'll drift as well some distance not like the acorns and things like that and then also behind you that right by the pond and they do like a bit of wet ground is a willow isn't there we do have willow they have quite a fluffy seed it looks quite similar to raw cotton again a bit like a dandelion that's something that can just be blown yeah and they can go miles in the right weather conditions can't they they can turn up anywhere. I mean, you sometimes see some of these windborne things in the gutters and things like that, in, you know, in the, some of the cities and stuff, they've blown so far. So we talked about beech mast, but there's a term of a mast year and oak trees and acorns do the same thing. Explain what that is. So a mast year is when a bumper crop or an excess crop of seeds are dropped in the trees. They got its name predominantly from the fact that a collective name for fruits and seeds are a mast. As you said, oak and beech are the main ones that do this and generally eaten by squirrels, jays and badgers. Now there's been a couple of reasons they think they do this but the main one is predator saturation. So essentially when these trees drop their seed the majority of it in a normal year will be consumed by bird and small mammal species. By creating a bumper crop you are then not only allowing your small species population to boom and influence the rest of the food chain, by producing the excess crop the tree also benefits because it's able to spread further and produce more younger trees which is a benefit that's necessary because actually it will then stunt their growth um, so there's got to be a positive for the tree to doing it and not just on the rest of the ecosystem and this is it isn't it it's basically a bumper year where you just actually flood the market almost you know, imagine you like potatoes but suddenly all you've got to eat is potatoes and there's potatoes everywhere and you suddenly i can't eat any more potatoes you know, so some will survive to produce more trees, won't they? And this has actually been used by foresters. And I think we might try in some of our woodland planting areas where uh, you set up like a big bird table and cover it in acorns. Because one of the main species which spread these trees and, and they do what they call caching, where they makes a little winter store individually. So a, a jay will take it and bury it somewhere and they'll bury hundreds of thousands of these a winter. They've got an amazing memory in trying to find these things again because they'll bury them in the grass but there's always a certain number which don't get taken and remembered by the jay and they grow into an oak tree and it's clearly a way because you've got these other dispersal mechanisms which blow in the wind or transported by birds but the acorn just drops straight down it's a way for them to move the oak tree can spread itself out a little bit more can't it which is quite amazing isn't it it is very amazing now these bumper acorn crops can be quite a problem can't they in some areas 
There can be, so acorns are actually quite toxic to species like ponies and you will probably see this more so in the new forest but something called panage takes place which is when pigs are then released into the habitat and they then go along and eat the excess acorns because they're not toxic for them. And uh, so it's quite important so it takes the, it means that ponies don't eat quite so many but I know that they use the same system in Spain where they have the, the really expensive Iberico ham is from the pigs they allow to graze on the oak trees, on, this, on the cork acorns. Yeah, quite a lot of trees have the male and female parts on the same tree, but some don't, do they? Yes, most trees do have separate male and female plants, as does many shrubs and fruiting plants. But there are three different categories. So the one you're talking about is called dioecious, and that, for example, if you take a holly tree, shrub the females will have the berries and the flowers the males won't so you can guarantee any tree with berries is female yeah. now any shrub tree without any berries isn't necessarily male and this could be for a couple of reasons it could be that you've got very few or no male shrubs or trees in the area so that females aren't able to fertilize it could be that it's too shaded too cold too dry or that the trees are too young because actually it takes about three to five years for fertilization to start yeah, I used to get it with people. If I was doing guided walks, they say, oh, what's the winter going to be like? I said, well, I don't know. You know, I'm not a weather forecaster. Well, there's loads of fruit on the trees. You think the trees don't know any more than we do about the next winter. It's more a reflection of how good the summer and spring's been, isn't it? You know, was it wet at the start of the year when the bees were trying to fertilise flowers? Or has it been too dry through the summer? So there's a lot of factors that can affect whether you've got fruit on trees, isn't it? It does. So the second category we have is monoecious, and that is when you have the male and female reproductive organs on one tree. One of my favourite trees to discuss this on is magnolia. Unfortunately, fortunately, it's not native. It's pollinated by beetles because it was considered to be one of the first flowering plants after the Cretaceous period. We're looking at 146 to 66 million years ago. At that point, bees didn't exist, so beetles did it. Um, so the tree has both male and female reproductive organs, but they mature at varying rates. The male organs will mature first and they hold the pollen. The beetles will then go in and collect the pollen. The female parts on another tree will then mature and mimic the look and style of the male organs. The beetles then will obviously go in and leave pollen behind, allowing for fertilisation, but they have to mature at different rates to reduce the risk of self-fertilisation. So it does rely on another tree of the same species to be nearby, so you get cross-pollination and cross-fertilisation? Yes, it does, because again, otherwise you increase that risk of self-fertilisation. And cross-pollination, cross-fertilisation is always better because you get more genetic diversity, don't you? Exactly. So the final category is hermaphroditic and that is when you have the male and female parts on the same flower. This is quite common in something like a cherry. Yeah, because of course you were talking about, you know, flowers evolving at a certain point. Flowers haven't been around, I mean, it's, they're brilliant newcomers, aren't they? Flowers as a way of fertilising plants and stuff like that. They are, there was a lot of ferns and conifer-like species before flowers. Their reproduction is really complicated, so I don't think we'll go into that today. today. No. You might wonder how we know about beetles and things and insects in uh, the Cretaceous period before those millions of years ago. It's because they get caught in amber, which, which is tree sap. Yeah, so they'll go in and they'll try and feed on the tree sap and get stuck in it and the tree sap covers them and then that fossilises in amber and you can get these bits of amber which have got insects stuck in there, perfectly preserved. That's very interesting. I mean, if you watch Jurassic Park, they do try and extract blood of dinosaurs from uh, a mosquito, but it doesn't really preserve them. That doesn't work, really. <laughs> to be honest, we don't really want that to work. I don't know. A few dinosaurs around would be quite nice somewhere. Did you not see what happened? Some little ones, maybe? Absolutely. 
but we know that wasps evolved way before bees did so they were way before flowers came along and then when pollen became available in flowers and it's really nutritious and some of the wasps started developing into ones that had hairs on them for gathering the pollen and sometimes some people call bees flower wasps because they evolved after the flowers of course no that's cool yeah so clearly we've got other signs of autumn coming in i mean it's a bit difficult sometimes to say because with being such a high heavy drought year some of the leaves have already gone brown because it was such a drought year and they had to shut down a little bit. But we've got, I've got a lovely little leaf here, which is all golden and brown here. And quite a lot of people wonder why you get this splash of colour in the autumn. Do you know why that is? No, Andy, enlighten me. <laughs> As light levels drop through the autumn and into the winter, there's a bit of balance in most trees in how much energy they gain from the leaves compared with the energy in supporting the leaves. Because clearly what you've got is a, a sort of organ of the tree which photosynthesizes and captures the sunlight and produces sugar. And the less sunlight there is in the winter, far less, means it's not worth having leaves on them. And also they can't be permanent structs, they'd wear out after a while, wouldn't they? So they put their fresh green leaves on in the spring. But in the autumn, because they're preparing to drop most of their leaves, well most plants are, they start drawing all the green chlorophyll out of the leaf. You can see there's a little bit of green left in there, isn't there? There is. And it might just be a happy accident that all the compounds that are left are these lovely golden reds and greens. And I mean, if you look at in New England and America, they call it the fall, don't they? Where you get these really amazing colours. And sometimes, you know, we get this same splash of massive colour. And it does vary from year to year, doesn't it? It does. As you walk through Quinlisworth Country Park in the autumn, you do get that stark contrast. In the summer, it's very green. And in the autumn, you start to get just this sheer orange and yellow. And it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I love the spring colours as well, because it's not all one green, is it? It's not. You get the orange greens of oak and the lime greens of birch and things like that. I and mean, it's difficult for feeling that it's going to be a lovely, colourful year. You know, you've got one leaf here at the moment. Most of these beech leaves have yet to turn, but I'm predicting a really colourful autumn. I'll hold you to that. And another sign of autumn you tend to find is these little mushrooms. You've got a little rusty coloured one here at the moment and it could be a great year for fungi as well couldn't it it could actually well where, where was i yesterday i was on walking across butter and there are mushrooms starting to pop up out of the grass these are basically the fruits of the fungi which is all massed underneath and actually some of the biggest organisms in the world are fungi because they have this they're not strictly speaking roots but it looks to most people like a root system called mycorrhizal hyphae which spread all underneath the ground and they found some fungi which are covering tens of thousands of acres in America and places like that. So the fungi form like a massive system underneath the ground. This is just the rooting bit that sticks up and they drop the spores, which then can blow away in the wind and form fungi elsewhere. But they've got this massive system that goes underneath the ground. And they do a quite an amazing thing with orchids. Because if you think about a seed, what does the seed contain? It contains nutrients such as oils, starches and proteins. So that really is a starter pack. It's got the little growing bit that will produce the plant but it needs a little starter to get the first shoots growing doesn't it it does they sort of grow send up a stem and put out two little leaves and then they can start capturing the sugars you know and the sunlight but orchids contain no nutrients whatsoever than their seeds it means they're tiny and they can produce millions of them because they're not putting loads of food in them but they do rely on fungi invading the seed and feeding the seed to get going 
So there's a really amazing situation where if you didn't have fungi in the soil, you'd never have orchids. Which is really interesting because I think fungi gets a bit of a bad rap when it comes to trees. So it's really nice to highlight the positive opportunities they have within the environment. Well, absolutely, because, you know, most, I mean, some do decay. You can get some like the honey fungus, which will kill a tree. There's clearly some are poisonous. Some are very, very poisonous. You know, this death cap and destroying angel, which quite clearly, as you might expect, are very poisonous. And with them, you eat a piece the size of your quarter of your fingernail and you generally had it. This is a reminder to everyone listening that do not eat anything unless you know what it is, please. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, but there's far more poisonous plants out than fungi, as to be said, including some in your gardens. And there's far more fungi out there which have the good relationship with um, trees. And actually, if you look at the centre of oak, you get that really dark, rich red oak, which is part of the value of it. That's produced by fungi invading it. So it doesn't rot it, it doesn't kill it. It just very happily munches on the middle of the tree. And the middle of the bit of the tree is basically dead space. The life of the tree is in the very outer bark, isn't it? Yes, because if you ring bark it or remove all the bark from a centre point, it then stops all of the water and nutrients being able to reach the top of the tree. So I'm a big fan of fungi, including I love a mushroom. Mushrooms on toast as well. Uh, somebody once said to me, almost like slugs on toast. I don't think it is. <laughs> My taste buds aren't that mature yet. I'm still on slugs on toast. Oh, okay. Yeah. We wait until you get a bit older, maybe. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Having said though that fungi, not everything's about rotting things down. They do do a very valuable thing in rotting the leaves down. Now, now people think about rainforests as being very rich, but quite often they're on pretty poor soil. But they're very quick at recycling. So every bit of the tree that falls, every leaf that falls, very rapidly gets turned into nutrients that gets taken back up into the tree again. And it's quite often by the action of things like fungi and, and bacteria breaking it all down and um, wood lice as well are very good. They're detritivores, I love that, because they eat detritus. That is so my new word of the week. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to think, if this thing wasn't breaking down all those leaves, we'd very soon be up to our necks in leaves. We would. Yeah and that then stops any undergrowth or understory growing through. So we need to be able to keep that mosaic. Absolutely. And there's a really interesting fact about ivy. Now, a lot of people don't like ivy on trees, do they? No, they don't because it supposedly suffocates it slightly. Yeah, it's absolute rubbish. Yes, it's absolute rubbish. If you look at ivy on, there's no ivy on these trees around here. Apologies to any foresters that are listening. <laughs> It really annoys me when see people cutting the stems of ivy on trees because it's a fantastic habitat. Ivy produces, there's a, one species of bee, the ivy bee, surprisingly it's called, which is now out feeding on all the pollen. And there's lots of butterflies and things like that on the, on the ivy flowers at this time of year. But later in the year, much later than most other berries, the birds eat the berries in the new year and actually if you look at a tree which got ivy on it when you've got leaves on the tree all the ivy sitting inside the leaves inside the canopy so they're not shutting the tree's leaves off from light but when the leaf, leaves of the tree fall because ivy's evergreen suddenly they're getting all the light so they do most most of their photosynthesizing and gathering their sugars in the winter when all the leaves aren't on the tree so they don't suffocate them. I think what happens is that um, a tree will get very old and very decrepit and just before it falls over, it looks like the ivy's covering the entire tree. And one other benefit of dropping your trees in the winter actually is you, you winter storms, you have the sail effect of all those leaves and it can blow the tree around and uproot it. So 
if it's just blowing through the twigs there's far less of that sail effect but if you've got ivy on it it probably is more likely to blow over they're saying that i've cleared trees on the rights away network that have been essentially held up by ivy and it yeah. wasn't until i've cut through that lace bit of ivy that the entire thing just collapses so it can be quite supportive as well well absolutely and it's a great place for birds nesting insects to hibernate in if a tree goes over with ivy on it it was probably dead for decades already so i think my message for that is please don't cut ivy off of trees it's a fantastic resource in the countryside it is i think you can from some perspective when you're trying to do safety checks on a tree ivy can be slightly problematic that's not so much an issue for the wider population yeah. but when we're doing our footpath checks actually when you've got trees without ivy it is easier and probably more able to get a more accurate view on the health of the tree but i don't think it's worth cutting it off just for the sake of convenience no just think it's a consideration to be aware of <laughs> do you know any folklore around seeds and things like that i know you do <laughs> i do i know one it's one that i'm hoping other people know because i learned it at school and i've never forgotten it it's based on greek mythology and hades fell in love with persephone and she was kidnapped down into hell with him and while she was in hell it was winter on earth he gave her 12 pomegranate seeds now before she could eat all 12 something stopped her and she only consumed six. At that point, it was then agreed that she would spend six months in hell and six months on earth. So the first six months when she's in hell is when we have autumn and winter, and we then have spring and summer when she is back on earth. It's some of that mythology where people try and explain why things are like they are, which is quite fascinating, isn't it? I love a story. <laughs> I'll always remember a story. And some of the things around evergreens, you know, because they're bringing in fresh branches into your house in the middle of winter, ivy and even, you know, fir and yew and holly. Clearly the holly, holly's got the symbolism of supposed to be Christ's blood on it. And mistletoe as well. It's quite a mythological part and in terms of the Celts, it was very important for the Celts before the Romans came along. And so bringing new greenery into your house in new Christmas and New Year, there's a lot of symbolism of rebirth and things like that, isn't there? So. Yeah, I do love a bit of history and mythology. Well, I've really enjoyed coming out here. I think we've managed to finish before the rain starts, which is always a bonus, but it's been really good coming out to see you, Ashley. It's been lovely having you. Thank you for visiting. So, tree planting and seed collecting is a great project that anybody can get involved with. Yeah, I think we're pretty sure we're going to get a lot of trees planted this winter. I think we are definitely going to plant a few. I'm already collecting some seeds ready to plant with my little girl. So what no. seeds have you picked up? So I've got some acorns because one of my favourite trees is the oak tree. Do you have a favourite tree? I'm quite partial to a field maple. They it's a lovely, are. it's quite a small tree, mm -hmm. but beautiful little leaves and lovely colour in the autumn. They do go beautiful colour, don't they? So I've got a really good fun tree fact, Andy. Do you want me to judge that later? Go on, no, give it to I me. No, you don't think my facts are fun. <laughs> did you know trees can talk to each other? I think you're going to have to explain that a little bit. I mean, talk is a, a, a big boast, isn't it? It is. So scientists have found that trees can flood their leaves with chemicals called phenolics when insects begin to eat them. So they can also signal this danger to other trees so that they can start their own defence before the insects get to them. Willow trees, for example, will emit certain chemicals when they're attacked by some insects and other willows will then go on to produce more tannin making their leaves harder for those insects to attack. Yeah, I've actually heard the one. So uh, yeah, it's communication rather than talking, I think, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, being pedantic. But also, because some insects, the caterpillars, before they start eating the leaves, sometimes will cut the veins to the leaf mm -hmm. to stop all those tannins getting into the bit they want to eat. Ah. So clearly there's a bit of an arms race there going on there. There 
is a bit. The other thing that has quite a close relationship with trees is fungi. Mm -hmm. It's not all fungi are just about rotting things down. And there's a thing called a mycorrhizal association. Basically, the mycorrhizae are the very fine, they're not quite roots, but they're like roots of the fungi. Yeah. And they coat the roots of the tree and they actually transfer nutrients between each other. Mm -hmm. They do a little bit of trading and the trees produce sugars in their leaves and they pass it down to the roots and they pass it across to the fungi and the fungi pass across nutrients back up to them. So it's a nice symbiotic relationship. Absolutely, and it's been proven that trees have a relationship with the fungi are far better than trees that don't have their relationship. That's really cool. Trees are very cool things. So I said I liked oak trees earlier. Yeah. One of the things I love about an oak tree is it is really useful. And if you've listened to these podcasts for a while, you might have heard on one we did on gardening, some whistling in the background. That's because with an oak tree, you can make a whistle out of an acorn cup. So if you're lost in the woods and you need to attract someone's attention, all you need to do is find an acorn cup, blow into it, and you'll get a whistle. Yeah, you're quite well known for teaching children how to produce these whistles when we're trying to record something else, Carly. I know, I love it, it's brilliant.